It's news, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shao kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. There it is, there it is. Get out, get out, all right. It's number 4192. A live drive single into left center field. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 4th. It's show number 22 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols discussing Jose Valverde, D. Gordon, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at the White Sox closer situation, the speed of Jamal Weeks, and more. We'll have our weekly talk with Todd featuring Todd Zola discussing how to assess strategies, roster construction in shorter-term formats, and batting order effects. In the first edition for 2014 of our regular Friday matchups analysis, BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Jeff Samarja facing Cliff Lee of the Phillies, Michael Pineda of the Yankees going up against R.A. Dickey of the Blue Jays, and Nick Martinez of Texas launching his career against David Price and the Tampa Bay Rays. And in Master Notes, I'll be up in the rotation talking about projected standings. It's another Big Friday News and Notes show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And we open our Friday news and notes show with our usual lineup at the top of the order. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old pal Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Before we get started talking about this week's National League news, I saw your byline on a uh, pitcher matchups column at BaseballHQ.com. This is something new for you, isn't it? It is indeed. I'm doing doing two a week, so this will be a new experience, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Kind of fun, actually, writing the first two. And that's a good excuse for me to remind listeners that we're starting with uh, pitcher matchups again here at Baseball HQ Radio on this very show. We have Greg Fishwick from BaseballHQ.com. He's going to be looking at some pitcher matchups every Friday for the weekend to maybe help you set up your streaming, and that's a terrific feature at BaseballHQ.com as well. Uh, the big news, Nick, in National League circles... Clayton Kershaw, the indestructible ace of the Los Angeles Dodgers, not so indestructible after all. Yeah, it is indeed. I mean, he's out for for an undetermined period of time at this point. At, at HQ, we've just reduced his playing time at this point by by I think five percent, but it looks like it could linger more than that. He may not may not actually hit the field until the end of April or maybe early May. So we'll have to watch and see what happens. But uh, you know, I, I think if it's not an arm problem, so we know that. Um, I think the Dodgers are being very, very careful with him, and I think I would be too if I were paying him that much money. Uh, you remember he pitched, did pitch in the first game of the season, so he's already gotten one game under his belt. Um, so, you know, if I were if I were out there right now, I think I'd be talking to panicked owners and seeing if you can buy low on him because my guess is whenever he comes back, he's going to be the best pitcher in the National League for the rest of the season. 
at the same time, it's a Terra's major muscle that is the affected body that's put Kershaw on the DL, and that's a muscle up involved in the shoulder region. Never good news for a pitcher when you hear anything to do with the shoulder. Well, that's, that's, that's indeed true. So we'll just have to see how this plays out and see what, uh, what it brings down the road. In the meantime, it looks like the rotation will consist of uh, Ryu, Granke, Heron at the top. Then there's a bit of a muddle after that. Uh, what do you think, Beckett and Mahalm? And would you want to take a chance on either of those guys? Probably Beckett and Mahalm. And I, you know, I, neither of those guys are guys that I would jump on, I would think. I, you know, I, it's a, uh, they're, they're both kind of bottom of the rotation guys in terms of a fantasy rotation. And that's where certainly I like to take a chance on a young guy who might uh, might produce more than you expect him to. So. Uh, back in the home are kind of known quantities and sort of, eh, okay, guys. But, uh, you know, beyond that, I don't think they're guys I'd be jumping on. Yeah, I've had Mahalm in uh, leagues here and there over the years, and you're right, eh, about sums it up because, you know, he'll he'll put together two or three good starts and lay a clinker on you and a couple of good ones, a couple of, you know, mediocre ones. And by the end of the year, he's been a number four starter, pretty average guy. Yep, that, that, that's right. That about describes him. And so, I, you know, I, there's, there's not much upside there. So, I, as I said, I'd go somewhere else, I think. On the other hand, if, if Mahom might be all that's available in certain kinds of structured leagues, uh, a deep National League only is going to be pretty slim picking. So maybe Mahom's your only choice, or maybe you just go to a, a longman reliever and uh, hope, for, hope for the best that you're going to get Kershaw back before too long. Uh, Doug Dennis wrote about the New York Mets bullpen situation this week at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, and of course, Bobby Parnell looks like he's going to be done for the year. They're trying to keep an optimistic face on his elbow injury, but it does not look good. And looks like Jose Valverde, uh, coming back from the grave, is going to have another shot at closing games in the big leagues. It does indeed. You know, we, we look at Jose Valverde and think, you know, here's a guy that had a, a, an ERA of uh, over five and a half last year. And you, you kind of go, what? Come on now. But, you know, I, I, look at Jose Valverde's skills for the whole year last year. Here's a guy that actually, in terms of, of BPV, hit 102, and that's kind of elite uh, elite level. In fact, that's the highest BPV he's had since uh, 2008. So there's still, still some skills there. A pretty good strikeout rate, 8.8 last season, uh, good control. Uh, so, you know, Jose Valverde might have a chance at least. Everybody's kind of dismissing him right off the bat. The big problem last year was giving up too many home runs, 24% home run per fly rate, uh, and that's just not normal. That was bad luck. So... Uh, you know, Jose Valverde might do better than anyone expects him to do, although certainly expectations at this point are pretty low on Valverde. Yeah, which might lower his price and make it a reasonable cost-benefit kind of situation. Uh, I am worried a little bit about that home run per nine rate, but something else that kind of seems to be in, in uh, Valverde's favor is the Mets are not exactly overloaded with options. No, they're not. The Mets don't have many options beyond, uh, you know, at this point. So, uh, I, I think that uh, Valverde is going to get kind of a long leash to try to uh, uh, to be the closer of the Mets. And, of course, you know, the other thing to think about is how many saves is he going to get anyway? Uh, uh, you know, the Mets are not going to be uh, the at the top of their division. So uh, probably save opportunities may be a bit smaller in that uh, in that uh, environment than they would be elsewhere. Although on the other side of that argument, people say bad teams get more save opportunities because the whatever wins they do get tend to be of the narrow variety rather than blowouts. Uh, they've uh, recalled Kyle Farnsworth. Any interest there? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have much interest in Kyle Farnsworth. I mean, you know, we're, we're looking again at a guy who's uh, uh, who's sort of in the uh, twilight of his career. So I, I don't think Kyle Farnsworth is likely to do much, but 
you know, somebody like that can catch fire for a month or two and, and do pretty well, but I certainly would not be jumping on Kyle Farnsworth. Remember the a few years ago he got in trouble when he was in Atlanta for making comments about the number seven train that went out to Shea Stadium in New York, and uh, guess what? Yeah, he'll be riding <laughs> yeah, that right. train as well. Right. They have a couple of young guys. We talked earlier this year about Vic Black, who was supposed to be the closer in waiting, and the, during spring training couldn't find the plate if you spotted him uh, 30 feet towards it. And Phil Hertz of BaseballHQ.com in his news analysis noted that Juris Familia has a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and he can't get it over the plate either. Would you say if you're looking at either of these guys, you might want to stash them, or is it too too soon to tell? I think it's too soon to tell. You know, the guy that I think I would stash based on what uh, on what I've been seeing is a guy named Carlos Torres, who's a swingman uh, and, and out for the Mets. And, you know, Torres is not a young guy. He's 31 years old, but... Uh, you look at you look at Stephen Nickran looking at what's going on, and he was uh, uh, pointed out that last year in a swing role for the Mets, Torres had a 7.8 DOM, 1.8 control, 44% ground ball rate, uh, 115 BPV. So, and and he continued that kind of elite command level going into the spring: 8.3 DOM, 1.1 control, 7.5 command in spring training. So, here's a guy you can get for absolutely nothing. Nobody's jumping on him. And Doug Dennis even mentioned that you know down the road Carlos Torres is someone they might uh, they might throw into a safe situation and see and see what happens. So there's a guy that you probably haven't heard of that I think is certainly worth looking at in this particular particular situation. Last year I had a 3.44 ERA, a 3.47 xERA, and a 115 BPV. So something to keep in mind. 115 base performance value is huge. That's closer worthy, definitely. And what's interesting about this proposition, uh, Nick, is that. Carlos Torres would not be the first sort of 31-year-old starter who made the transition to the bullpen, and a lot of times that transition goes very, very well. It, it may indeed. I mean, Carlos Torres is already doing kind of, kind of a middle relief sort of thing, so he's used to coming into games in the middle, and, and uh, he might, might work in, uh, in late innings very easily. Well, Nick, you mentioned Stephen Nickrand. He's our starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist at BaseballHQ.com. He does a fantastic job. And in that same column about spring training command leaders, he pointed at Yuzmero Pettit, the uh, starting pitcher in San Francisco. No slot yet. But boy, if one should open up through injury or poor performance, uh, Yuzmero Pettit might jump into a rotation role and take hold. Yeah, he might, he might indeed. You know, here's another guy that's a little bit older, 29 years old, but, but really at a prime age in terms of, uh, of his... and and. At this point, he's San Francisco's long reliever. That's where he's starting the season, but would be next in line for a rotation slot if there's an opening. Excellent skills in the spring. 9.6 DOM, 1.3 control, 7.5 command. Um, six, did, had six starts last September for San Francisco and posted very similar kinds of skills. 8.3 DOM, 2.0 control. So a guy that you might want to stash. There's a chance, certainly a chance that uh, his Merrill Pettit could wind up in a starting role uh, before the season's out, and certainly he's a good guy to back up a uh, any any of those San Francisco starters with if you have him on your roster. Yeah, the beauty of this is this is the kind of guy, uh, Yusmero Pettit, I think, Nick, that you want to stash after you see somebody in the San Francisco rotation start to struggle, whether it's injury-related or if they're just not performing well, there's uh, any kind of concern about it, that's when you go out and grab Pettit for a dollar or two, put him on the end of your bench, and just wait for the chips to fall. And maybe it doesn't pan out, you're out a dollar or two, but uh, you certainly want to be making that move before the news comes out that there's going to be a change rather than after, because then his price is going to shoot up to the to the moon on your fab bidding, and it's always better to get him early than late. Right, very definitely. It's, it's a, as a, a, a real good guy to stash now when you can get him for a buck.
It seems like fantasy owners, Nick, have been waiting since uh, the Dodgers played in Brooklyn for D. Gordon to come up and play some second base that was useful. And uh, Dan Becker's buyer's guide says maybe this could be the year that he gets things straightened out a little bit. Well, you know, D. Gordon, D. Gordon's kind of a surprise starter in second base for the Dodgers at this point because they, they signed Alexander Guerrero and, and sent him down to the minors, like thinking you're not quite ready yet. And so D. Gordon is the starter right now at second base. And, you know, it's possible D. Gordon could actually just kind of grab hold and uh, and be there for a while because in spring training, D. Gordon went wild on the base paths. I mean, just uh, uh, just was stealing all over the place and can carry that sign. He has that kind of speed. He can carry that into the season, especially if the Dodgers are going to let him run. So, D. Gordon's a guy to look at. I think you know it, it, he's uh, he started off the uh, off the season well. Uh, he has a chance of being a, a, a sort of a, a medium medium kind of on base guy. Uh, 2012 had an on base percentage I think of uh, only 280. So, but 325 in 2011. So, if he can wind up closer to that 325 area, uh, that's that's an okay on base percentage and. Uh, he might do fairly well and actually hang on to that, that role until the Dodgers think Guerrero is ready. And my, my understanding is that problems with Guerrero revolve around defense, and certainly that's the kind of thing that take a little bit before they're ready to trust him out there at second base. Another thing about D. Gordon that Dan Becker pointed out is his walk rate has been climbing slowly but steadily, which is an excellent sign for a guy with his speed. Anything he can do to get on base really maximizes his value. I, I checked uh, a day or two ago about D. Gordon's projection, 220 at-bats only, so we're not still convinced that he's going to be the solution for the full year. But in 220 at-bats, 20 stolen bases. So imagine what you could do if you could say 500 at-bats. Now you're talking about 50 bags. Yeah, you know, this is a guy that, that they, when, they, when he's been on base, they let him run. Uh, stolen base opportunity percentages the last three years, 48, 55, 41. So he's a guy who gets the green light. So, uh, you know, and, and that's certainly another positive thing for a uh, for a, uh, a guy who's uh, in a starting situation. Boy, is it ever. And before I let you go, Nick, I, I was wondering, I noticed in a box score the other night that uh, the Chicago Cubs got a victory and Pedro Strope got the save rather than Jose Veras. And Veras has been struggling. Is this a sign of a changing of the guard? No, it's not. I think there was a Veras had thrown something like 29 or 30 pitches the previous night or the previous couple of nights. So it was a pitch count issue. Uh, that Vera simply wasn't able to go out there than, uh, on that particular situation. So I don't think it changes the guard. I really think they're going to have a fluid situation in that bullpen until Fujikawa is ready to come back, and then I wouldn't be surprised that there's another guy to stash for a buck somewhere because I would be surprised if he grabs hold of that closer role and takes off in the second half of the season. But he has to come back from that injury, so that that's a question. And in the meantime, I kind of like Pedro Strope. He seems to be turning his career in the right direction as far as harnessing his stuff. And if he can do that, gosh knows, uh, boy, Varus is no prize as a closer. And I bet he's on a short leash, so maybe Strope could uh, kind of back into 15 saves here before uh, the uh, anybody else shows up to take the role. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, certainly Varus is not the... Uh... Uh, he's not an elite closer, and you're right, he's going to be on a pretty short leash. Nick, thanks a million for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols covers pitcher matchups at BaseballHQ.com twice a week and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD, how you doing? I'm uh, getting over a cold, and I think I'm doing better at that than you are. Yep, I think you are too. This has been a, a rugged week. Thank God for opening day, huh? That's right. Uh, my recipe is uh, rest in bed, drink plenty of whiskey. 
Yeah, I'm trying to do that. I'm not going anywhere now for the next uh, three, four weeks, so I, I might be able to do that better than I have the last month. The whiskey doesn't actually help, but after the first three or four, you don't care. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's a crazy situation going on with the White Sox here. Uh, Bob Berger's uh, American League Central playing time tomorrow column looked at the decision that Robin Ventura, the Chicago manager, made to anoint Matt Lindstrom as the closer for the White Sox over Nate Jones. And we had all thought that Nate Jones had this in the bag going into spring training and partway through it. What's going on here, Jock? Well, Ventura went with the guy who had the 312 ERA last year and who's had closing experience before, although he... Uh, Lindstrom really doesn't have a lot of it. In in Miami back in 2009, he had 15 saves. And then in Houston uh, in 2010, he had 23 saves. The interesting thing about those years is that Lindstrom also, Lindstrom also had respective ERAs of 5.89 in 2009 and 4.39 in 2010, which don't exactly scream closer. And, and even though he's pitched much better since, his expected ERA has never been better than 3.61 with his dom, his strikeouts per nine innings, hovering between six and eight. And in short, Lindstrom just doesn't seem likely to hold down a closer role anywhere for very long. Yeah, the skills are definitely suspect as far as closers go. And uh, sometimes managers just like that guy who has the experience, and there doesn't really seem to be any reason for it. But they do it so often, Jock. Do you think there's some possibility that there's something to it that all of us numbers guys are just not seeing? Yeah, I don't know. I think this situation is so volatile. Um, um, Jones has his own has his own warts. We'll talk about those in a minute. Um, it, it's one of those deals where you you wonder if 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 they're trying to catch lightning in a bottle and ride a hot hand for a couple of months because I don't really see a natural closer on the White Sox. So what about this Jones character? Well, Jones actually has has better uh, BPIs than uh, Lindstrom does. He. He whiffed 9.5 batters every nine innings last year, and he put up a ground ball rate of nearly 50%. And his expected ERA was 2.87 last year, but his problem is that he had a 4.15 ERA, which was a product of struggles versus left-handed hitters and poor hit rate and strand rate luck. Um, But it's still Jones' skills you want on your roster over the long haul, not Lindstrom's if you're looking for a closer. I'll add to something that you just said um, um, about uh, defining a closer role on any team. One of the things that I, I think um, managers think about when they do this is they, they believe that baseball players are creatures of habit, and maybe managers are too. They like the defined roles, um, and I think this plays into a little bit, although I think you're right. I think they overthink it a little bit, and at times they really should um, um, let the matchup dictate who's going to be their pitcher in the late innings and not uh, what the role should be. I completely agree, and certainly there's ample evidence to suggest that um, for instance, a guy like Craig Kimbrell in Atlanta, and I talked about this a week or two ago with someone here on Baseball HQ Radio, who pointed out that he only pitched in the ninth inning in all but maybe one or two of his appearances, and he very rarely was in a situation that could be considered high leverage. And that meant that Atlanta was using poorer pitchers in tougher situations, and it makes no sense. If you've got the bases loaded and one out, you've got to get that best. The best guy you got's got to be in there. You don't need him in there with uh, with three run lead and uh, and three outs to go. Yeah, what we're seeing a lot of now, and and particularly now with the the social media being what it is, you're actually seeing a little more focus on managers who are actually losing games now because they're not using their best pitcher at key times. And rightly so. And I, and I think as as managers get younger and you start getting guys who think about this stuff a little more, that might change. 
in Dan Becker's uh, spring training hitters column, he looked at a few names of potential base stealers, and one of the names he brought out was Jameel Weeks from Baltimore. Jock, you're like me. You're not so high on Jameel Weeks as maybe Dan Becker is. Tell us why. Dan's obviously right about Weeks' good contact and excellent speed. He noted those in his column. And he has an improving walk rate that make him interesting to some uh, observers. But several things about Weeks that I've never been able to get around. The first, that he has zero history of elevated base running success. Even though some of his uh, stolen base success rates, the percentages of his, his uh, successful stolen base tries versus his caught stealings, have been very good. He's now 27 years old, and his highest stolen base total at any level has been 22, a year in which he was caught 11 times. Now, you add to this a complete lack of power, which is also a factor in his depressed batting average, and the fact that he plays really subpar defense at second base. I don't see a lot of upside here, and apparently neither did Baltimore since Weeks was demoted out of spring training, but I don't even see him being worthy of a minor league stash. Yeah, I agree with you on this on this call exactly, Jock. You can't steal first base, and you have to contribute something other than just running around out there. Even Billy Hamilton, you know, you can say all he's doing is running the bases, but he's playing a little bit of center field, and he's not as bad a center fielder as Weeks as a second baseman, and he's getting better. It's not as pivotal, pardon the expression, a defensive position in baseball uh, as a second baseman is. I agree with you on Jameel Weeks. Uh, yeah, he's got the good wheels, but boy, they don't seem to translate into anything useful. Dan also touched on an, on another name, and it's a name that you mentioned in your American League West Playing Time Tomorrow piece last week. J.B. Shuck had a nice little year last year, 13 bucks of uh, rotisserie earnings, and uh, he had a decent spring, and then they sent him down. You're in the uh, Angels' camp there. What the heck are they doing with J.B. Shuck? Well, Shuck played a lot in 2013. He had 437 at-bats, and it was largely due to Peter Borges' DL time. I actually came to appreciate his limited skills and playing style. It was mostly a a playing time and contact-fueled 293 that he hit last year. But with Borges gone, the emergence of a healthy Cole Calhoun was just going to limit the at-bats for Shuck, so the Angels thought he was better off playing every day in Salt Lake City. Um, he really needs an injury to get the playing time he saw in, in 2013. And at least for now, this doesn't look likely. Uh, the one skill he has is contact. He's got very good speed, but it doesn't translate into base running. Um, it's really kind of a shame because, like everybody is noticing, he, he had a very good rookie season in 2013. Well, Burjos being gone uh, certainly decreases the likelihood of an injury at that position, but Josh Hamilton's uh, an injury risk. Is there any chance that Shuck would be the first guy called back in the event of Hamilton going on the DL? Oh, absolutely. And this is why Shuck remains a watch or even a stash in deeper leagues because uh, um, the first outfield injury that's going, to de- that's going to result in extended playing time for anybody, Shuck is going to be the guy they recall. If, if you look at what we have him projected for now, I, th- I think we're projecting a 2 $3 year, but it's based on a little over 200 at-bats as opposed to, to last year's 437 at-bats. So it's all going to come down to injuries for Shuck. You mentioned uh, in your article about Shuck being sent down that they gave his roster spot to Ian Stewart and Certainly, Ian Stewart has seen some better days uh, in baseball. What are the Angels thinking, and why is Ian Stewart even on the roster? Stewart is still only 29 years old, and I I think you recall, uh, even as early as a couple years ago, some of us at Baseball HQ still thought if he could stay healthy that maybe he could uh, realize some of the power and patience potential that he's shown in previous years. He actually had a year in Colorado where he hit 25 homers. Um, 
But Stewart's, uh, Stewart's career has been torpedoed due to injuries. He had a lot of wrist injuries, and he's always had contact issues. I think the Angels' thinking here is that neither Albert Pujols nor David Fries have been particularly healthy recently. And Stewart had a, had a good spring training, and he can fill in at both first base and third base. It's unlikely, but I think the Angels are, are trying to see if they can catch lightning in a bottle with Stewart here during the early season. Um, I personally think the Angels still have problems at third base. I haven't been impressed with Freeze in the early going. Um, and uh, I, I think the Angels are worried about third base a little. They have a guy in double-A that might be the solution, though. How likely is it that Caleb Cowart, who was 5-for-6 on opening day, ends up uh, playing regularly this year? Well, it's, it's real interesting because, uh, as we all know, minor leaguers and prospects don't develop linearly. And Caleb Coward had a terrible year last year. He was, he was on most top 50, top 60 lists uh, in t- beginning 2013. And now you don't find him on too many top 100 lists anymore after the year he had. So if you're really looking for a sleeper, some guy, somebody who, who, make, who could come back from a terrible, terrible 2013, Coward's the guy you want to put on a watch list. And meanwhile, Jock, uh, just before I let you go, I know you're an Angels fan. You've been an Angels fan for a long time. They don't look so good in the early going, and a lot of people had picked them to win the division because of the difficulties Oakland's having with their rotation, difficulties Texas is having with their rotation, and the general haplessness of the Mariners. Boy, I have to say, Jock, the Angels don't look like a championship-level team. No, I agree. I saw them. I, I, I was at opening night. Um, I watched most of the second two games. Um, it was it was extremely depressing. They had a very good camp. They had a very good spring training. But something about April, when the bell rings in April, they're just nowhere to be found. Um, the biggest problem on the team is their bullpen. It's already given up 12 runs in the first four games. or I'm sorry, the first three games. Um, I don't see how they're going to fix that. Uh, they've got uh, Dandy LaRosa and Sean Burnett coming back uh, from the DL. Those guys are going to have to be good from day one for, for the Angels to get any better. So we'll see. All right, Jock, thanks very much for filling us in. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Hope you feel better. Okay, PD, thanks a lot. And do try that whiskey cure. It really works. Uh, Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, it's Talk with Todd. Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just trading board at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of it. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'm guaranteed that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column has the 8th Annual Long Shot Caucus with some wild predictions about possible performance anomalies this season. Greg Pyron's Playing Time Tomorrow column looks beyond Jose Valverde in the Mets' closer situation. And Glenn Lowy has his draft recap from his joint NFBC entry with Baseball HQ. 
Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, our buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups are back, and much more. It's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd. It's a pleasure to once again be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Last time we talked a week ago, you were on your way into Las Vegas for the National Fantasy Baseball Championship drafts. How'd you do? Well, uh, talk to me in October, but I I get I have some reasons to pay attention. I believe I uh, pretty happy with how things ended up, and um, should be a fun six months managing a managing a few squads, hopefully to victory. You play in the uh, big money National League only auction. Tell us a few of the guys uh, that you were thinking about getting and how much you succeeded in getting what you wanted to get. Well, actually, I found uh, you know, that some people kind of knew where I was going with that, and I didn't actually end up getting some of the players I had intended. Uh, it might be the, the irony. It might be the only league I don't have Mark Trumbo, and I have him in almost every league, but a couple of people knew that he was a favorite of mine, and wanted to bid him up and I'm you know I like guys but I like him at certain prices and if once he passed the price I dumped him in their lap and uh I think that actually ended up stopping some people from doing that oh no he is going to you know he's not going to you know go overboard for some of these guys but uh you know that's it, it I get ended up getting uh actually I I did it a couple times this weekend where I found a Roldis Chapman because he's hurt was a bit undervalued but I guess I'm a little optimistic that he's going to come back, and man, he's just so good that I'm willing to lose a month or six weeks and fill in, and you know, and take the discount. So I end up with Chapman on quite a few teams. Yeah, it's interesting when guys get hurt. A lot of times, people just ignore them, and it, you have to realize it's not forever, which I'm sure is what a lot of people are hoping for. Clayton Kershaw, we talked about that a little earlier in this show with Harold Nichols in the National League. Market Watch report. Uh, Todd, you've got your first piece up on Chandler Park, Ron Chandler's new website devoted to his monthly game. Uh, you're talking about lineup construction, matchups, that kind of thing. It's really important in these shorter term games. Right. One of, I'm going to be doing a few things for uh, for Ron and Chandler Park, a few free form pieces. But every every other Friday, I'll be contributing the the matchup analysis for that weekend's games. For those that don't know, you get to change your lineups twice a week. Monday and on Friday, you know, when the when the natural series uh, begin and end. So I'm doing for the this weekend, and and what I look at, is, we're talking about fringe players. I mean, you, you, duh, you start Mike Trout if you have him. Uh, so for fringe players, you look for for little edges, and you can look at the numbers year after year. And players play about 10% better. Their skills are about 10% better at home than they are on the road. So that's one of my filters is, you know, ties go to the player playing at home, both pitchers and hitters. Uh, and I look for, when it talks, when you look for a hitter, the, the best matchup for a hitter is a uh, left-handed hitter facing a right-handed pitcher and then becomes a right-handed hitter facing a left-handed pitcher, then a right-handed hitter versus right-handed pitcher. And what you want to avoid is a lefty-lefty matchup. If you look at numbers... OPS of those different matchups. So I'd, I'll tend to look at that, especially for platoon players, your Nate Shareholtzes, your Matt Joyce's, players like that. Do they face, you know, if they're facing a couple lefties that weekend, you know, they're on your bench. If they're facing three righties, 
they're absolutely in your lineup. So I sort of look for that sort of thing. Um, and I, and I'm at, you know, a future piece is going to talk about park factors and how they're nice, but I think we rely too much on them for two reasons. One being, there's some surprising park factors out there where you may not realize that some parks are are not intuitive as far as hitting or pitching parks. And the second being, just because a park plays away doesn't mean a you know a good hitting team. Is going to score runs in a bad part in a, in, a, in a poor pit, you know, in a in a pitcher's park. Sometimes we overlook the actual team that they're playing in there. You know, a, a good pitching staff will will pitch well in a in a in a pitcher's park. Or sorry, hitter's park. You know, if they're good pitchers. Sure. So uh, you know, sometimes we blindly thought park good park bad park, and we forget about the opposition. And I think that needs to be factors in factored in as well, and not just blindly go by the park. Yeah, that's that's an excellent piece of. Uh of advice because a lot of people do look at that and and overplay it exactly as you suggest they you know oh Miguel Cabrera is going into San Diego in an interleague game I'm going to bench him this week he'll never hit anything there the fact is the guy could hit it out of uh, any park that pretty much has ever been built you you have to trust the talent at some point and I think the park and those other things you mentioned they all play at the margins and that's important because the margins is where a lot of leagues are won yeah absolutely and sometimes if you overplay you're giving away that the you know if you if you overplay a park you're doing the opposite and you're giving away just that little bit and by giving away just that little bit you're giving that margin to your opponent so yeah you're right and it, i think what's really interesting though is you know places like miller park and phil uh, pnc not pnc citizens bank i'm sorry citizens bank these are actually they're playing as as slight hitters parks in terms of runs scored and, and maybe home runs is different, but in, you know, if you're thinking about pitching, in terms of runs, even Mar- Marla, Miami's, Miami's Park, these are playing slightly positive with runs scored. Now, I realize that you try to flesh out the, bi- the bias of the, of the teams, but the, the equations really don't do that. So there's some reflection of the team itself, even in a three-year spread. But I think in, intuitively we think Miller's Park and uh, – not Miller, I'm sorry, Citizens Bank uh, – I think I'm having this backwards, but uh, we, they're, not as, they're not as hitter-friendly as we think they are is what I'm trying to say. Right, and uh, you know, every time I look at Fenway Park, I'm always surprised by how not hitter-friendly it is. It's, not, it's not, certainly not disadvantageous to hitters, but to some hitters it is, and overall, it's not as offense-friendly as everybody just seems to intuitively grab onto, and those are the kind of things that, again, can really eat away at your margins if you're making... Uh, player decisions based on assumptions that really aren't true, and further, as you said, uh, assigning the the gross effect of the player of the park effect onto all the players, irrespective of their ability to hit or pitch the ball in real game time situations. But now you're getting into the point where, you know, you not only look at the park, but the, the opposing pitcher. If it's a fly ball pitcher in a big park, if it's a fly ball pitcher in a small park, you know, ground ball, etc., you can start matching that up because not all pitchers benefit by the, you know, dimensions of the park. You know, a ground ball pitcher, who cares where he pitches? Right. You know, if he's a ground ball guy, he's going to benefit, you know, not if it's a small park, big park, it doesn't matter as much, but a, you know, a fly ball guy is going to get much more hurt in, you know, cellular one than he is in, in, in Kaufman or something like that. Like everything else we do with this data, Todd, it comes down to make 
some assumptions based on the gross data and the effect that they have in the big picture, but never lose sight of the fact that these are individual ball players, and some of them are very, very good or not very, very good, and no park is going to help or hurt a guy whose who's talent is such that it is what it is. Uh, moving on, uh, at mastersball.com, you have a new column, and you've talked in the column about, you call it buyer's remorse, I guess, but it's not about the players that you picked. It's about the strategy that you chose. And I'm curious about this. Assuming we don't adopt a weird oddball strategy like the $9 pitching staff or all guys over 30 or you know those kind of things that we read about from time to time, usually from uh, fantasy baseball writers trying to drum up a column idea, how much time do you think is worthwhile when you come out of your draft to look back on it and assess your strategy? Quite a while. There's actually some data out there that talks about you know individual players when certain skills stabilize. So you know when you're looking at a particular player, is he striking out more? Is he walking more? Is he you know hitting for more power? At what point in the season is is you know the fluke aspect out of it, and is the new skill real, you know, good or bad? So there, there is that end aspect of it. But what I was talking more about is, is you know, my, my strategy, and I, you know, I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, is I have no strategy. My strategy is to put the best team together that I can. And sure, we've talked about a few little, little, little goofy little things I like to do as far as pitching was maybe uh, if I don't get the, the ace that I want, take a couple of really good closers and pair them with lesser pitchers. So I guess, I mean, maybe that's more of a tactic than a strategy. But the point being, I know for a fact there are some people that, I mean, they take their ADP, they take their draft spot, they take an ADP, and they map out how they think a snake's draft's going to go. And they'll hear afterwards how they got, you know, 14 of their 23 players that they thought they were going to get based on ADP. And the thing is, these guys are good. These guys end up winning leagues or, or, or competing. So it's not as if, you know, it's just, you know, some Joe just saying it. And it's similar with auctions. I, I know guys that, that figure how much they're going to spend per player, and they have a sheet of 23 names and dollar values, and they'll say afterwards they end up getting you know 13 of these guys, and they also do well. Where I'm kind of just the opposite, where I don't know who I'm going to get, so I you know I begin to wonder, am, am I too, you know, too loose? Am I too cavalier? And maybe I should have a bit more of a roadmap than trusting that I know everything. I don't know. So I mean, and, and so I, I think I go through this every year. Um, you know, some years I do well, other years I don't do so well. But every year I wonder, you know, did I do the right thing coming out of my draft? But I, you're right, I got to give it time. And I think I have, you know, just enough success that I don't feel I need to change it. But maybe not enough that maybe I should change it. I'm kind of on that borderline. When I think of strategy, you, you and I have talked about this on the show and uh, outside the show as well. I think of uh, my strategy as being similar to yours insofar as we both have dollar slots. And I know there are people who think that that's an idea that prevents you in certain ways from getting the bargains that are presented at the table because you don't have the slot or you know, you have to grab them and start making adjustments to the slot, which kind of makes the whole thing moot. And I'm wondering, have you ever looked at your slotting method and or the dollar thresholds that you put on it because you seem to be pretty locked into how you want to set that up. You once told me it's a lot of $5 guys and then it scales up in $5 increments. Have you ever looked at that and said, geez, maybe I've got to, given the way things go in drafts nowadays, more stars and scrubs, less stars and scrubs, maybe I need to rethink that? I'll never rethink the slotting. I may, I may rethink 
my initial construction. But even that, I'm not so sure because the reason is the slotting and then looking at the available player pool in tiers is how I make sure that I never leave money on the table. So to me, it's it's more of the me the means I visualize things so that I never end up leaving uh, auction you know available budget on the table. And you know so the original. You know, if if I have a thirty dollar line and, and a forty dollar guy that I have pegged for forty seven dollars is there, it's very easy for me to make the adjustment on the fly. Now, of course, the more adjustments I'm making to the lines, the less I'm paying attention to what else is going on. So you do want your initial map to be, you know, fairly close to how you think things are going to play out. But it's loose enough, and I mean, it's just simple, you know, addition subtraction. Right, it, it can be done you know, pretty quickly and then you have enough breaks during an unusual auction to make sure you're not off by five or off by ten or, or missed a line or something like that. So I'm not I'm not giving up the slots, but I might readjust my thinking, you know, do I want to set it up more stars and scrubs? Do I want to sp- set it up more spread the risk? Because I think psychologically we would we we, we, we want to stick with how we go in, you know, so you know, if I feel I want to force myself more stars and scrubs, I'll set the lines up in that manner. What is the danger as we assess the strategy coming out of the draft, uh, especially if we've had a poor draft, that we assume that maybe the strategy was flawed when, in fact, the strategy was fine, it was our execution that was off? To me, it's not why you picked, it's who you picked. I mean, you can, you know, some of these guys out there that have got their own systems, the years that these systems work, they, they point to the system. You know, maybe it's picking you know, scarce middle infielders. In the year that it worked, they picked the two guys that ended up in the, you know, the top 15 overall. But the year it didn't work, they picked a couple guys that struggled. Was it the system or they just happened to nail those two middle infielders that particular year? Right. You know, so, you know, even even going back, you know, to, to the Lima plan, when, you know, the, we mentioned it before, that to me, to me the, the hidden part of the Lima plan was the fact that you really got to kill the offense. Well, if the years that you absolutely nailed your offense with the extra money, then the Lima plan worked. The years that you know a couple of hitters got hurt or struggled, then the Lima plan didn't work. So yeah, I, I don't think it's. I mean, the plan set you up. I think it could put you where you need to be in, in your mind and, and maybe if even, even confidence, if if anything else. But it's still the players. It's still. I mean, you know, we, I know enough people too that have no, you know, have less of a strategy than I do. And still do very well because they just pick good players and then have 26 weeks to manage the stats into a, a winning combination. Finally, Todd, at FantasyAlarm.com, you wrote about under-the-radar players, and this is interesting, who might be able to have impacts in categories because their batting order position changes. And I think this is something we don't pay enough attention to. And I'm uh, wondering about where you're at on that as far as its importance in a full-year league versus a monthly league versus daily leagues and so on? I've thought about this for a while because I do projections, and, you know, for the longest time, all we cared about was, you know, how's a player going to do over the course of a year? And you'll hear all the time, you know, this guy's going to hit leadoff, this guy's going to hit second. But, you know, that's what they say in December. You don't know injuries, you don't know this, and by the end of the year, it usually ends up, you know, a player gets the amount of plate appearances within a range that he gets in the past. But with the, you know, as the time frame of the game that we're playing gets smaller, you know, Ron's monthly games, the the daily games that are out there, uh, 
where you are in the batting order becomes paramount because that extra plate appearance, that extra chance to produce could be the difference between, you know, win or loss in a head-to-head or or that extra few points in a monthly league or in a daily league. Uh, in, so I think it's becoming more and more important. Fortunately, it's becoming easier and easier to look at because there are sites out there that now track batting orders and, and you know, list the last five days or last seven days. And, heck, if you follow the right people on Twitter, you can get the batting order, you know, a couple hours before the game for, you know, for all the, you know, for all the teams as well. So I think it's becoming very important. And what I did in the, the fitness, the alarm was there are some, you know, right now it's a little too early to look at trends within, I mean, Emilio Bonifacio is not going to lead the league in hitting. I feel fairly certain about that. And I'm willing to bet that Alondra Diazza is not going to lead the league in homers. Just going to go out on the limb here. <laughs> but um, but we can look at things on the short term. You know, Michael Gadai is hitting second. He hit cleanup or fifth a lot last year, so that gives him more at-bats, but maybe it, it makes him score more runs and takes away our runs and RBIs. So if you're in a head-to-head league, you, you probably need to know that because your construction, your roster construction might be a little bit different. Same with Brandon Phillips and Will Myers. These guys are all hitting second. And you think of them as more power hitters. So if you're in a head-to-head league, you might need to adjust uh, your your construction to make sure you can take all those categories. Travis Snyder has actually won a platoon. And he's hitting second. Not only is he playing more, he's hitting second in the Pittsburgh lineup. So he's a guy to look at. And I think the cat was out of the bag when Cole Calhoun was announced as leadoff. If, you know, if this guy can continue to hit leadoff all year, not only the extra plate appearances, but if, if Albert Pujols and... And, and Hamilton can do anything. This guy could lead the league in runs. You also had a uh, a chart showing runs scored and RBI by batting order slot, and uh, a pleasant surprise. It it worked out exactly as you would have expected had you drawn it out without even looking at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, sure, you know, in, in, intuition's nice, and you know, it it makes a much better podcast when I you know when the topic is. We discuss things that are non-intuitive, like we're going to do with Park Effects coming up soon. But yeah, the, the, the leadoff hitter scores the most runs, and then it declines accordingly. Although second and third are, are pretty close, and then the RBIs, the the big spots are three, four, and five. Although I was sort of a little surprised at how how it held through through six and seven, how the the the, the six and seventh hitters still were able to manage to get a number of RBIs. Now, one, I'll call it, you know, a slight flaw. I probably should have broken it up into AL and NL because of the whole pitcher hitting ninth sort of thing. So it may have been a little bit more interesting uh, to take a look to see how it matters, you know, in the two different leagues. But right. the bottom line is, is you know, if you want an RBI guy, you know, hitting, hitting fifth isn't so bad. Uh, you lose a few chances, but you're still going to produce. And as far as overall overall value, you know, value in a vacuum, you know, the number three, if you add up runs plus RBIs, the number three, four, and five spots are, are where it's at as far as that goes. And then as long as it's a whole year league, you get the rest of the year, you know, to adjust accordingly as far as, you know, where you want to be in each category to get the most points. And of course, the uh, the counter to that in a full year league is whatever the batting order is on opening day, 
the players are not all going to stay in those slots all year. There'll be there'll be performance issues, injury issues, uh, the manager wanting to move guys around. Joe Madden, I forget how many uh, lineups he uses in a year, but it's well over a hundred with guys bouncing around all over the place based on pitching matchups versus the hitters and so forth. And so you can't start on opening day and say, "Good, I've got a guy who's you know Evan Longoria is going to hit fourth all year in in." Uh, Tampa, you know, because he probably isn't. He's going to move around a little depending on a lot of things that a smart manager is going to adopt. Well, for instance, uh, you know, when we were doing our, you know, projections in December, I didn't have Martin Prado hitting cleanup, and that's where he's been hitting for the the Diamondbacks. The same with Jose Altuve. Some people think that's a brilliant move that he's hitting cleanup against right-handed pitching, but other people are like, what the heck is Jose Altuve hitting cleanup against right-handed pitching for? Uh, you know, Joe Maurer up in the two-hole. In, in part of it, and this is what's frustrating, you know, from a, a fan's point of view, not to mention an analyst's point of view, you know, there'll be a goofy lineup one day, and the guy will get three hits, and the manager will just leave him in that spot. And because he's now, he's obviously comfortable in the seven-hole. Well, you know, he's one of your best hitters. He just was in the seven-hole because of a, a weird lineup construction, and you're going to leave him down there now? Um, you know, Carlos Gomez was was sort of the example the past couple of years. Right. Fortunately, he's well, hope fortunately he's leading off this year. But that's yeah, that's that's frustrating too is when a when a manager thinks it takes the pressure off of a good hitter by having him hit down in the order, the guy goes 2 for 3 with a double and a, you know, and a walk and a run scored and the manager thinks it's because he hit 7th that day. Ah, drives me nuts. Yeah, somebody should point out it's because he had an egg McMuffin for breakfast and maybe uh maybe he should be doing that like Wade Boggs did with the chicken. Yeah, you never know. You just never know. <laughs> All right, well, no such superstitions here at Baseball HQ Radio. We can count on Todd Zola every week. Todd, thanks very much for joining us. We'll catch up with you again next Friday. Looking forward to it as always, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and ESPN.com, and he appears every week here on the Friday News and Notes edition. Our first matchup segment of the year and Master Notes are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is the ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our Friday Baseball HQ Commentaries. I'll have master notes in just a minute, but leading off this inning of the show, our weekly matchups commentary. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings run from plus 5 to minus 5, with recommendations starting at plus 2.0 and warnings at 0 or under. Now looking at Jeff Samarja facing Cliff Lee of the Phillies, Michael Pineda of the Yankees against R.A. Dickey of the Blue Jays, and Nick Martinez of Texas launching his career against David Price of the Rays, Here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. In this segment, we look at the probable pitchers for each week's Saturday and Sunday games. Matchup ratings compare each pitcher's demonstrated skills with each opponent's offensive production. The resulting number is the starting pitcher's matchup rating for that game. So which starters do we recommend this weekend? Of the 60 starting pitchers, 13 are recommended. Perhaps the least obvious is Jeff Samarja of the Cubs. He faces the Phillies at Wrigley Field this Saturday, and his matchup rating is exactly two. Last year, only four teams had worse road records than the Phillies, but that's tempered by only Houston having a worse home record than the Cubbies. In 2013, 
Philadelphia gave up an average of nearly a full run more than it scored per game. The Cubs came closer, if only by half a run. Samarja had mixed results in two starts against Philadelphia last year. This year, he already has seven shutout innings against Pittsburgh under his belt. Samarja's matchup rating is not a strong recommendation in part because his opponent is Cliff Lee. Lee's matchup rating is even higher than Samarja's at 254. And which starters do we warn against this weekend? Eight of the 60 starters are red flagged. The most worrisome are one returning from injury and one rookie. Michael Pineda is returning from shoulder surgery he had in 2011. His start is Saturday in Toronto against R.A. Dickey. Last year, Dickey was outstanding in three of his four starts against New York. Pineda's matchup rating reflects the dangers of the unknown in a hitter-friendly venue. He carries his minus 210 matchup rating into Canada. Also on Saturday, Nicholas Martinez makes his major league debut for Texas in Tampa. His matchup rating is minus 217, and he's facing David Price. In his only start against the Rangers last year, Price had a complete game victory. Sure, it's a pitcher-friendly park in Tampa, but watch out with Martinez. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a copy editor at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk to you about standings projections. I win. Well, at least that's what one of the projections says. I play in just two fantasy leagues, a home league AL only, and the Tout Wars Mixed Draft. My two leagues drafted on successive weekends, and as we approached the end of week one, I decided to take a look at some projected final standings in both those leagues. Here's the weird thing. In my home league, I had a terrible draft. I couldn't be in the room, so my partner and I tried to use Facebook messaging to manage our bidding. It worked great when we tested it at 11 o'clock at night on a Wednesday. But the draft took place on a Sunday afternoon, and it turns out more people used the service at that time, and it made it very slow and completely useless for something as fast-paced as a fantasy auction. We ended up leaving about $20 on the table, and we ended up with a team that has about as much power as the Bad News Bears. My Tout Wars draft, by contrast, went really well. I did pretty much what I wanted to do, with a couple of exceptions, and I came out of my auction with a team in which I was, and still am, pretty confident. So, one good draft, one bad draft. But the projections say I'm going to have a fighting chance for the pennant in my home league, and I'm going to win Tow Wars. Many stat providers these days offer owners a chance to project the final standings of their leagues at any stage of the season. The systems add year-to-date stats to projected stats, and then do up a set of standings with the combined results. On Roto.com, the stats provider for Tout and for my home league actually offers two sets of projections, including one based on BaseballHQ.com projected stats. In my home league, the HQ projections have us finishing in third place, and the other set says we'll be about fifth. But both sets say we'll have exactly 61.5 points, and four of the eight category scores match exactly. In Tout, the HQ projections have me in the middle of the pack, but the other projections say I'll have a four and a half point win and be only one of two teams over 100 points in the 5x5 league. 
Of course, the truth is I can't trust these projections in either league. The fantasy baseball season is six months of games, literally thousands of at-bats and batters faced, injuries and flops, as well as unexpected production from unlikely sources. In a nutshell, the projected final standings are fun to look at and fun to talk about, but I don't trust them. I do trust the category bunches. I did an interview this week with Ray Murphy that will appear on the April 8th Tuesday Tout edition of this Baseball HQ Radio podcast. And Ray, I think he put it perfectly. He said he doesn't care if he's projected 5th or 2nd or ninth in a category because that's asking for way more precision than even the finest projection systems can provide. Instead, Ray said, you want to look at each category, identify where the bunch is, and then determine if you're in the bunch, above the bunch, or below the bunch. In that way, you can easily identify where the dangers lie and where your opportunities might be. You can estimate the likely range of overall outcomes by adding up your score if everything goes well in each category and you hit the tops of your bunches, or if everything crashes and you hit the bottoms of your bunches. I've already figured out that in Tout Wars I have some opportunities to gain points in homers and RBI, and that I might be able to deal from what looks like an unnecessary surplus of stolen bases. Actually, I did that by design at the auction when I realized that the power was vanishing. Draft for production, trade for balance. That's the theory, and it works pretty well in a trading league like Tout. I also might look at swapping one of my closers for a starter, since I'm at the bottom of a bunch of wins where I could gain six or seven points, but I still don't figure to lose much in saves because I'm at the bottom of that bunch. And so on. In the end, the way to win any league is mostly just to stay at it. Make moves when you can, but try not to make moves when you don't have to. Just remember, it's a long season, and you're not going to win it in the first three days, no matter what the crystal ball says. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for April 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. Our HQ matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. And I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four short days with our Tuesday Tout Edition featuring Baseball HQ co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. That's on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.